A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on January 27th, 2021. I am your host, Anna Garcia, and our guest today is criminal defense attorney, Danielle Iredale. Danielle, welcome back to the program. We're so happy to see you. Thank you so much. It's so good to be back. And we understand you have some breaking news to share with everyone. I do breaking news. I'm having a baby girl this June. So we are um, super excited about that. Oh, what a blessing. Congratulations. We're so happy for you. What it is? What is it like trying to be pregnant and working in the middle of a pandemic? So it's um, been really nice to get to wear spandex on the bottom because <laughs> I've had, um, had video court when I was pregnant with my son. I had to wear um, all sorts of funny stuff in court. And just try to make the best of it. And hopefully, right, fingers crossed, uh, this summer and a little bit uh, thereafter, we'll be through this, right? Yes. Let's get through this, please. Yes. Well, congratulations again. We're so happy for you. Thank you so much. We have some interesting cases this week. And one is a case that I actually covered for Crime Watch Daily. So I'm uh, very, very curious as to how this case is going to play out in court. Here are the stories we're looking at. A baggage claim sticker becomes a key piece of evidence that leads to the arrest of a suspect after body parts are found inside a suitcase. But first, eight years after 21-year-old Kelsey Schelling went missing in Colorado, jury selection has begun for the trial of the man who is accused of killing her. This is the case that I covered for Crime Watch Daily back in 2017. And when I covered this case... It was a missing persons case, obviously. There was concern of foul play. There was a presumption that Kelsey was dead because there had been absolutely no signs of her. There were no bank transactions, cell phone, nothing. And at that point, there hadn't been an arrest yet. And it's as you want, as you can understand, it's it can be such a difficult case, especially when there is no body. So prosecutors are generally hesitant to move forward with a murder case if they don't have enough evidence. Because those that doesn't mean that they won't try those cases, but they are tough. Absolutely. I there there is a doctrine actually in the law about this called corpus delecti. And it, it, back in the day, if you couldn't find the body, you couldn't prosecute. Uh, today, it's it's very different. In California, you just need a little bit uh, of evidence, and and it does make sense as a just doctrine because uh, people deserve justice and people do deserve answers. So, if they can establish, like you said, with other evidence that this person unfortunately is deceased, the case can go forward legally. Let's get to some of the background of this case and bring everybody up to speed to where we are. Kelsey Schelling disappeared on February 4th of 2013. And according to cell phone records, she was driving from her home in Denver, Colorado to Pueblo, which is about two hours away to meet her then boyfriend, Dante Lucas. Kelsey had just confirmed that she was eight weeks pregnant 
And she actually mm-hmm. had the ultrasound from her visit to the doctor. She was so excited that she had texted those photos, not only to her mother, her family and friends, but according to police records and according to the mom, Kelsey also texted the ultrasound photo to both Dante Lucas and his mother in a group text. That's how excited she was. Now, Kelsey's mother told me that Dante, Lucas, and his mother were not happy about this pregnancy. That is from her perspective. The two of them met in junior college. Dante was a star basketball player, six foot eight forward. And the two of them had an on-again, off-again relationship. They both went on to different schools, and she moved to California, then she went back to Colorado, and ultimately they reconnected. And at the time of Kelsey's disappearance, according to her family and friends, Dante and Kelsey were back together, even though he was living at home with his mother in Pueblo, Colorado, and Kelsey was in Denver and had just started working. So... That is a little bit of the background of the relationship between the two of them. Now, for Dante, his basketball career never materialized, and he was quite a superstar in Pueblo because I I was there covering this case, and, you know, everybody in Pueblo knows Dante Lucas because he was just such a standout player in high school, and they had a lot of hope for him. So that gives you a little bit of perspective about what happened and what didn't happen for Lucas in his career. On the last night that Kelsey was seen alive, police say cell phone records show that Dante had asked Kelsey to drive to Pueblo so they could talk face-to-face. He said he needed to talk with her. When Kelsey's friends and mother did not hear from her the next day, they got concerned. Laura Saxton, who is Kelsey's mother, immediately filed a missing persons report with the Denver police. Okay, now after filing that missing persons report, Kelsey's mother says that she called Dante. This is a clip of my interview with Kelsey's mother from Crime Watch Daily. When we finally filed the missing persons report, I called Dante right away, you know, to ask him if she, he knew where she was. And, you know, he had said that he had seen her and that they got in a fight. And, you know, I said we can't find her. I said, she's, she's missing. I said, I don't know where she is. And he's like, you know, oh, okay. I mean, like no alarm, no nothing. Just, oh, okay. Yeah. If I hear anything, I'll let you know. And then shortly after that, I hear back from him and he's like, well, Kelsey just called me from a private number. She said she lost her phone and that, that she'll be getting a hold of you soon. Then after that, you know, never really heard anything more from him. So what do you make of this exchange as described by Kelsey's mom? So it's odd, right? It's odd if you hear your pregnant girlfriend is missing. We don't know the backstory. We don't know if sometimes these two would get in fights and one wouldn't hear from the other for a while. Uh, But it's the first thing that the suspect says is always what rings in our ears. And I think that's always what can start suspicion. Uh, I don't love this answer. If I were Dante's attorney, I wouldn't love it. Uh, That alone, certainly, though, isn't the smoking gun in this case yet. Of course not. Of course not. Because Mm -hmm. already we understand that there's some friction over this pregnancy. And so 
you know, they may not be communicating in the best way possible, that that is also a reflection of what could have been going on. And Kelsey's dad, Doug Schelling, says that he was frantically texting his daughter because now they're really worried it's not like Kelsey. He says that he got this response back that she texted dad and said, you know, dad, I'm not feeling well, I'm resting, I'll call you tomorrow. And then dad says, you know, come to think of it, that just didn't sound like Kelsey, it doesn't sound the way she would respond or say things. There's no proof whether that was or wasn't Kelsey, but the dad was concerned that something something was wrong with that. Basically, he was suggesting that maybe someone was responding for her, that it wasn't Kelsey, but we have no proof of that. Kelsey's parents say that they and Kelsey's brother were interrogated by the Denver Police Department when this missing person's case was filed, and then afterwards when her car was found abandoned, which we're going to get to, at that point when a car is found abandoned and it was found in Pueblo, police start thinking foul play. This is no longer just like, oh, you know, she she took off for a few days and, and wanted to disconnect. The father in particular, in my report, he said that he was really interrogated by police, that he felt like he was a suspect. But as we all know, when there is a case like this of either a missing person or a murder, it it almost always, not always, but generally, most people are murdered by people they know. Absolutely. Those are just the statistics and the reality of it. Even though we all worry about um, random crime, which does exist, it is. It, it happens a lot less frequently than these known, you know, people killing each other who know each other. Oof, very disturbing. So let's get back to the cases. It's unraveling in real time. So about 10 days after Kelsey went missing, her car was found, a Chevrolet Cruze, and it was located in a parking lot of a hospital in Pueblo. Now police believe, okay, this is serious. This is more than a missing person. This is potentially foul play. So they start looking at all surveillance cameras to see what they can pick up where of this car. So there are multiple things happening at once here. So police say that Kelsey's car was parked in a Walmart for 18 hours. Kind of unusual, but some people do park their cars at Walmart, right? Big parking lots. It's there for 18 hours. Police say that you can see a man... This is at the end of the 18 hours. Police say you can see a man in a hoodie walking to her car, gets in the car, and drives away. Then after that is when the car is found abandoned at a nearby hospital parking lot. Here's the problem with that. You absolutely cannot identify who that person is. The the surveillance video is just not good enough. So, Danielle, what do you do with this surveillance video? Because you can't positively ID who that person is. So the the job of a prosecutor is to take these small facts, add them up, and make it overwhelming proof. Here we have an interesting fact. Dante is 6'8", and a very small percentage of the population is 6'8". So if this were my case and I were charged with prosecuting it, I'd get an expert and see if we could figure out how tall the person in the surveillance is. Of course, the job of the defense attorney is to find statistics, figure it out. How common could it have been for it to have been someone else? But no matter what, 
Danielle, we're never going to know exactly who that is unless someone can positively ID him, meaning someone else who was there. Because the video, no matter what you tell me on this side and you tell me on this side of my ear, right, the the, the conflicting Mm, the, the the conflicting analysis, if you will, of what that videotape means, at the end of the day, neither one of them has proof of who that is. Absolutely. Which is why, as as I'm sure you'll tell us, this is a trial case. It seems like this case is going to trial. And these are the kind of cases that go to trial where the facts are capable of argument from both sides. Right. Yes. And they are in jury selection right now. That has started this week. So let's get back to some of the more facts. So... There's that video that we can't really make out, but then police find another video that absolutely is Dante, they say, without question, they say, and here's what police release. It's surveillance video from a local bank, and they say that it allegedly shows Dante withdrawing $400 from Kelsey's account. This is after she disappeared. So, police pick up Dante for questioning, and they are initially considering charging him with identity theft. And they did arrest him on that, but they ultimately dropped those charges. Here's why. Because Dante convinced them, and then they were able to find evidence, this is according to police, that Dante had permission to use Kelsey's account, that he had the PIN code to Kelsey's account, and therefore, with the understanding that he had this permission, they could not charge him. But while they had Dante in for questioning, then they start questioning him about Kelsey's disappearance. And this is what's very interesting, because this is all videotaped. And in that, in, in that questioning, he says a few interesting things. He says that Kelsey was no longer pregnant, and police challenge him on that. It's like, well, how could that be? Because she was pregnant in the morning. And what are you saying? That by the end of the day, she wasn't pregnant. So there was no clear answer to that. The other thing that I think is very important here, Dante told police that it wasn't his baby, that there's no proof that if she was pregnant, that it was his. And because Kelsey is missing, right, we, we don't have Kelsey's body. We don't know what happened to Kelsey. There's no way of knowing whose baby it really was because she was only like eight weeks pregnant. So I, I find that, and he also denies, and he has denied the entire time any involvement at all with Kelsey's disappearance. So what do you make of that? So when, when I was looking into this case before our recording, I found the trip to the hospital very odd. Right. My mind went in a million directions. Did they go to get another ultrasound so he could see? As you pointed out, he, she was only eight weeks pregnant. We don't know who the father is, but it, it is somewhat interesting when confronted to immediately deny that. Right? We don't know what our reaction would be if we were in a situation like this. Right? Because there is a possibility and there's a universe where this is someone who loves Kelsey and she's missing. Maybe he's he's scared and he's stressed, but we can't deny that it's an odd reaction for your answer to say, that might not be my baby instead of, where is this person, right? Where is this person who I love and who everyone agrees is pregnant? And there are some discrepancies in his version of events 
I'm not saying that they're not true. I'm just saying that police say that they weren't able to corroborate what he said. He mentioned that they had gone to the hospital that evening. Now, remember, her abandoned car was found at a hospital, but it was a different hospital than he said he took Kelsey to. But police say that the hospital claims there is no record of Kelsey or Dante having been to that hospital that day. So it's very confusing. He says they went to the hospital. Okay, well, her car is found parked at a hospital, but the one he says that they went to, according to police, has no record of them going to. It's all very confusing. Yes, it's very possible that they wanted confirmation, proof that that she was pregnant. Maybe they didn't believe the ultrasound. I have no idea. It's, It's a very confusing situation. And I think what's also interesting is... All right, I'm I'm going to play the other side. It seems from what the family claims and and what police are saying that you would look at Dante as the strongest suspect. And when I did this report in 2017, the police called him a person of interest at the time. And it has taken something like, you know, years, right? 8 years Eight now years. just for the trial mm-hmm. to get to this point. So it's not like this was a slam dunk. That's what I want to know. What, and it seems as though the police are being very tight-lipped, what put this over the edge to go ahead and charge him and go to trial? And I know we have Anna's list of uh, things dumb criminals do. Number one is body in the backyard. We know that isn't the case here, but I'd add number two, uh, use the ATM card of the missing person, uh, which is present here. There are little facts, but at this point, I'm very interested to know what else, what what was found and what propelled him, right, from a person of interest to now he's on trial for murder, the most serious crime. Absolutely. Here is a clip from my interview with police back in 2017 about the case and about Dante's possible involvement. You think she was murdered? I do. And there was some tension with Dante. I think this um, pregnancy probably played into that. So what do you think happened to her? I think she came to Pueblo. I met Dante. I believe there was some argument that escalated between the two. I believe that she was killed. Um, uh, I believe Dante is responsible. I do have to comment a little bit uh, on that. I think your reporting is fabulous and not only am I attorney, but I'm a true crime junkie. And so all of these questions are amazing and I just want to know the answers. As a defense attorney, I have to say when we have interviews like that with the police captain pointing a finger saying, this is who I know did it. What comes to my mind is how is he going to get a fair trial? Are these potential jurors also watching this? Are they hearing this? And then are they going to come in uh, thinking that he knows something that they don't know? So they're going to convict based on evidence that they don't hear. At the time of Kelsey's disappearance, this is interesting about community response. At the time of Kelsey's disappearance, when the family felt that they were not getting enough of a response from the police, they started gathering people in the community to protest, protest outside the police station, to protest in downtown Pueblo, protesting, demanding justice for Kelsey. They really ratcheted up the pressure, the family and friends did, that the police department was not doing enough. In fact, the family even 
sued the police department. Well, I didn't know that. There was a civil lawsuit. I mean, they they were they were furious. They they were really angry, feeling that the police department was not doing enough in this case. And the captain even shared with me that day that there had been a lot of friction between the family and the police department because of this overwhelming feeling by the family that the police wasn't doing enough. So uh, it took a while, the captain said, to rebuild some form of trust and continue working on this case. But it's not like it accelerated the case tremendously because she went missing in 2013. And I believe Dante was arrested several months in 2017 after I did my report. So a few months after my report aired is when he was arrested. And arrested on other charges. Is that right? Not originally arrested for this. um, When he was charged with murder, Kelsey's murder, he was already in jail on an unrelated charge. Unrelated charge having to do with Kelsey. So when he was actually charged with Kelsey's crime, with, with allegedly murdering Kelsey, he was already being held on an unrelated charge. What comes to mind for me with that is the possibility of a jailhouse informant. He's already in custody. What if we have someone come coming forward and saying, hey, I spoke with this person. I was in lockup with him. He said X, Y, Z. I'll be very interested to see what comes out at the trial. Well, here's another thing that could be a possibility. But a few months after I I did my interview on April 14th of 2017, authorities began excavating the backyard of a home that Dante had lived in previously. This is before he actually gets charged with Kelsey's murder. Police said that they found some evidence in the backyard, never said what it was. It for sure wasn't Kelsey, because I think they would have said that. Because to this day, I really believe that the mother is very torn here. While she wants justice for Kelsey, it is agonizing to her. And you can see it in her face. You can see it in her eyes. It is agonizing that she doesn't know what happened to her daughter, doesn't know where her daughter is, and she wants her daughter back. Back. I I read a very poignant, uh, heartbreaking quote from the mother about that. She, She wants to know where her daughter is. She wants some semblance of peace. You're never the same. I don't know how you, you go on, but I can absolutely understand that and was very moved when I saw her interview and, and her quote. So on the 14th of April, April, 2017, the backyard is dug up. On December, same year, December 2017, Dante Lucas is charged with Kelsey's murder. He was in custody already on that unrelated robbery and assault charge. So that gives you the perspective you were asking for and the dates. Yep. On May 31st of 2018, a judge rules that there is indeed enough evidence to try Dante for the death of his pregnant girlfriend, Kelsey. This is according to the Denver Post who had been following it. Now, here's what, I mean, obviously, because we're already in jury selection, we're already there. I want to ask you this. So, Danielle, when there is a ruling like this where a judge says, yes, I believe that there is enough evidence to go forward, is that basically the pre-trial hearing? Is that when the prosecution says, 
okay, Your Honor, here's why we believe he should go to trial for the murder of Kelsey Schelling. So that's exactly right. It's called in California, it's a preliminary hearing, seems to be called the same in Colorado. And that's a hearing in front of a judge. The prosecutor presents evidence, defense attorneys can question those witnesses, and they have to put on a fair case that something happened here. It's nowhere near uh, reasonable doubt. But this comes from our, our long history and the idea that we don't want people to have to stand trial based on an accusation and a finger pointing. We want something in between to protect them. So this is a, an important step in ensuring that everyone has rights and in understanding that sometimes going to trial itself can be a huge uh, burden on someone. So I'm wondering if this hearing, we don't know a lot of what came out of that hearing. Uh, the transcript should be public record unless it was sealed. It's very interesting because that was three years ago, yep. and we are now getting to jury selection. There were several delays. I believe there was a change in defense attorney as well. So one of the things that has come out as part of Dante's defense, he has maintained the entire time that he had nothing to do with Kelsey's disappearance. He is now pointing the finger. Dante and his defense team are pointing the finger at Kelsey's father, Doug. And Dante and his team have said in court records, they allege that the father could be the killer because he allegedly had a history of violence toward Kelsey. This is according to Dante and his team. The father denies it. The father says it is not true. Is that kind of a defense to, to point to someone else? It's like, ooh, that goes towards reasonable doubt. No, 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 it wasn't me, but I can give you an idea of who it might have been. Yes. So that's called third-party culpability defense. And each state has their own rules about it. I suspect the reason we know about this defense is because Colorado requires in limine pretrial rulings on whether or not the defense can bring it out. And the idea is that judges want to have some handle on it. They don't want us to go to trial and then surprise the prosecution with a really compelling case that a third person did it. So generally with the defense, we don't have to give notice of everything. We have no burden. But here the law says you need to give a heads up. And the judge can also decide, you know, I think this is way too far afield. Defense attorney, you can't bring it up. So I imagine that these court filings are pointing the finger. We don't know more details, but it, it could be a compelling case. So here we are, eight years after Kelsey's disappearance, three years after Dante's arrest, jury selection has finally begun. And we are at the very beginnings of this. I think opening arguments are really going to tell us where each side stands and sees their strengths and their weaknesses. I think there's something like 50 witnesses that are going to be called. What I want to know that is absolutely not clear to me, and you asked that question, is what is the new evidence? What has changed in all of these years? What has changed? How is this case any stronger today than it was a few years ago? That's the part that I don't know. Because so far, police 
and the prosecutor haven't shared it, but don't they have to in discovery? I mean, they can't just like whip something out in court and surprise everybody. So I'm wondering if here there's discovery pursuant to a protective order. Sometimes in cases like this, we'll get discovery and be forbidden from sharing it. In rare cases, even with our own client. I suspect that that happened here. It's very strange to me, almost in every case that's going to trial as the public, we know a lot more about what's happening, what's going on. Here we don't. I I have a suspicion of a viable theory that the defense can bring forward based on that third-party culpability of the father of the recent pregnancy. I think that there is a case that can be made, but we'll see how the defense you know, chooses to play it because they can also, instead of putting forward another theory, they can just say, there's not enough here. And, and that theoretically, if there's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, they should get an acquittal based on that. Dante has maintained from the very beginning that he had nothing to do with Kelsey's disappearance. He has pleaded not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder. When I was in Pueblo, I tried hard to get a comment from him. I finally did catch him as he was outside his house, but he drove away and had nothing to say to me. I, I wanted to hear his side of what happened but I didn't get that. He had the opportunity and he chose not to talk to me. You can see my entire investigation on True Crime Daily, and we will have a link to my original report in the description box. I'm smiling because you're such a badass. I oh. love <laughs> that clip. Love that clip uh, that you're talking about that you're going to link to. And also, uh, as a defense attorney, I... I think the defense attorney is certainly glad that there's no prior statements. Anything that our clients say can come in against them uh, as what's called a party admission, uh, unlike general hearsay. So certainly, I'm sure his attorney's uh, glad you didn't get the clip, but I know we're all thankful for your reporting. That was an incredible clip. Well, I certainly make my attempts, don't I? <laughs> you listen, not for lack of not for lack of trying. Yeah. <laughs> Our next case, we are staying in the state of Colorado, but this case is really unusual. A Colorado man has been charged with first-degree murder after human remains were found chopped up and stuffed into two suitcases. Denver police say that the victim, 33-year-old Joshua Lockhart, was killed, this is what police say, by 28-year-old Benjamin Satterwaite. He has been charged in this case. This is, it's how they pieced the suitcases back to Satterwaite is what is very curious to me. So let's talk about the details. On the morning of December 29th of 2020, just a few weeks ago, last month, city workers were plowing snow in the streets of Denver and they find these two suitcases on the street, on the sidewalk. There's a purple one. And there is a black one. So one of the employees unzips the purple one and discovers a human foot and immediately calls 911. Okay. I feel like no one should ever have to see that. That's, it's a rough day. Right? It's a, it's a really rough day. Yeah. Right? Because you really don't know and it's cold. So 
maybe there's not that kind of odor that you may get from decomposing body parts. And you may just very genuinely just be like, hey, there's a suitcase here. Who's, what is it? Is it trash? Oh, boy. So once police arrived, they noticed a baggage claim sticker on the purple suitcase. This is the one with the foot. Now, we're not talking about those big tags that they wrap around and put on your handle. You know, the really, really big, long ones. Okay, that's not the one we're talking about. In addition, in case you haven't flown recently, in addition to that, the airlines take a little barcode sticker. It's usually white, it's small, and they just stick it on your suitcase somewhere else. It's like a second identifier to your suitcase. And because I traveled so much for Crime Watch Daily, I had so many of these stickers on my suitcases. I was constantly peeling them off because I was afraid my suitcase would never end up at the right place because you have so many of them and they stick them in weird places. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, here's another one. So that's what we're talking about. And, and the stickers have not only a barcode, but some other identifying information. Okay. So according to police, the sticker they found allegedly had the last name of a passenger and a location. The name Satterwhite. And then D-E-N for Denver. All right. So now police opened the other suitcase. This is the black suitcase. And in there they find a human torso in a garbage bag. Okay, so now they've got body parts in two suitcases, and they have a sticker that could mean something. It could mean nothing, right? This could suitcase could belong to someone who threw it out, never took the sticker out. We have no idea. But this is the avenue the police start to pursue. So their approach is this. One, let's get to Denver Airport. Let's talk to the authorities there and figure out what does this sticker mean. The second thing that they start doing is, Let's pull all the surveillance from the area where the suitcases were found, and let's see what information that gets us to. This is how police are working this case. At the Denver airport, they get information back, and the police are told that it's a United Airlines sticker that landed in Denver on the morning of the 21st. So it is a sticker that is from recent travel. That suitcase according to the police and according to the airlines, was used very recently. Okay, so what does this mean? Right? Like, what do we do with this information? So, the suitcase allegedly belongs to the father of the man who stands accused. So, not Benjamin Satterwhite, but Benjamin's father. The father told police that he flew to Denver to see his son Benjamin and Nine News in Denver reports that the father told police that his son had a problem with drugs. Okay. So, a few things are coming into focus right now. What are you thinking so far, Danielle? The sticker. Take it off. Take right. it off. Why is the sticker on yes. there? And, Dad, why... Why are you talking to the police? But at that point, no one knows what's going on, right? And Oh, you so you feel that dad is partially helping police to build a case and maybe incriminating his son by making that statement that was reported. I can't help but feel that way, but as we'll see, I think with or without that statement, it's a pretty uh pretty strong case. Okay. So police then 
look at the security cameras in the area, and they say that they have found footage that allegedly shows the suitcases being tossed in that exact location the day before the suitcases and the body parts were found. So that would have been on December 28th at around 8 p.m. Police say that the car was a dark-colored SUV. Now, this is where I believe it gets unbelievably interesting. While the police are tracking down the baggage sticker, they are going through this surveillance video. There is another issue going on in Denver at approximately the same time that the investigation is going on that might give them even more information. So this is three days after the suitcases are found. Police are called to the home of Benjamin Satterwhite. Police say that they find a woman dead of what appears to be a drug overdose. And according to police records, Satterwhite is unconscious and allegedly because of a drug overdose, he is transported to the hospital, according to police. Here's the other thing. Police say that they find another suitcase matching the one that they found in the snow. Now, that to me is like, really, sometimes people do buy suitcases in sets, but come on, how, how is that? How does that implicate him? I mean, that's just me. Well, and it's just a black suitcase, right? It's not a pink polka dot suitcase. There's nothing unique. Right. It's just another suitcase. But okay, for them, they're like, hmm, suitcases. Anytime, you know, this last name comes up in a suitcase, police right now are really on edge, uh, you know. Can't blame them. No, no. Given what they have found. So they are in the house and they're dealing with a, excuse me. They're in the house, and they're dealing with a woman who has now passed away. They are dealing with a man who has been transported to the hospital. And police say on just their, you know, their immediate impressions, they say it appears that there is blood on a chair and on a pillow, that there are cleaning supplies and trash bags in the immediate living area. So police say that they get a search warrant to come back and search the rest of the house. This is what I always find interesting. So if you have someone who is just, who's been found dead, you have someone who's been transported to the hospital, why do the police still need a search warrant to search the rest of the house if you already have um, a situation like this unfolding? Is there any latitude when that happens? Or must they get a search warrant because they're thinking, or, or is that because they're thinking search warrant because of the suitcases with the body parts? So that's that's a great question. I do, and I can't help, I, I do have to say, part of why this story is so sad is that there's another life lost, right, to, to a drug overdose. And that links into your question. The police are allowed to come into this house because of a, it's called community caretaking exception. They were called because there was an overdose, there was a death. And when they come in, anything that they see in plain sight is fair game. But in this case, now things are adding up to the police. It's the same last name, which is a rare last name. Oh, yeah. It's the suitcase. They have nothing to lose at this point by going to a judge, getting a warrant. They're absolutely allowed to use what they saw. And that way, there's going to be no issue later in the defense attorney uh, moving to suppress the evidence that they found. So what the police did here was just good, clean police work. 
they saw what they saw when they were trying to care for these people. And it was incredibly damning and more than enough to get probable cause to search. So they got the warrant and came back and they didn't have to worry about evidence destruction, right? Because both residents of the house were were gone. Police returned with that search warrant and they allegedly discovered blood in the bathroom and on a sofa in the living room. They claim that they discovered packaging belonging to a hacksaw and a saw blade. They also saw saw a receipt from Walmart for the saw and the saw blades, and they were purchased on December 27th, okay, a few days before the bodies were discovered, before the body parts were discovered. And the name on the receipt ties back to the victim, apparently. That's what's interesting, that police are saying that the receipt ties back to Joshua Lockhart, the victim, not to Benjamin, the suspect. That's what they say. I find that curious. So police go to the Walmart and they review the security cameras. They say that it shows a man who allegedly looks like Benjamin, but here's the problem. The man buying the saw at that time that matches the register receipt is wearing a yellow face mask because of the pandemic. So police say they cannot positively say that was Benjamin. And this is something we've all been wondering in true crime. Because of the pandemic and the wearing of face masks now, it's going to be very, very hard to identify some people at these points where it was sometimes so much easier in security cameras at gas stations or at department stores or 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 any place. But now with the face mask, Good luck. I mean, that would have been such damning evidence to have him on video buying this item, probably with the deceased credit card, right? So to miss that evidence, I'm sure the police are incredibly frustrated. Yeah. That, so that's, there's a weakness there. And especially if they are correct on what they're saying about the credit card and who it may belong to, that, that, that could also be an interesting point. Cell phone records from Benjamin's deceased girlfriend, this is the one who was found in the apartment, allegedly show a text that was sent from Benjamin to the girlfriend referring to someone, quote, who's toast. I don't know how damning that is, you know, unless, don't, I don't know. What do you think, Danielle? From what I read, it doesn't say his name. Right. So that alone isn't enough. Is it? I'm sure the defense attorney is not thrilled to have right. that as part of it's the not case. helpful. <laughs> it is not helpful to the defense. Right. It's unclear how helpful it is to the prosecution. That's right. A witness reportedly told police that Benjamin and Joshua, Joshua being the victim here, had once been roommates. Joshua was last seen on December 26. A friend told police that he took Joshua to a check cashing place and then dropped him off at a park. According to published reports, Joshua was a father and he had allegedly struggled with drug addiction and homelessness for some time and that he had recently been kicked out of rehab before his murder. So it's a very sad story leading up to his death, 
Benjamin Satterwhite was arrested on January 8th. Police have not been able to find all of Joshua's remains. Still missing are Joshua's head, arms, and one leg. It's a lot. That really is. And just from the point of the criminal case, do you have to find the whole body or just having part of the body? And then obviously they're going to have to positively ID it. I mean, we're not done yet. You you don't have to have the body at all. Um, this suggests that he's definitely deceased. I This case brings up two things. I'm feeling a, a little wild, so I'm going to tell two secrets. I've been locked down, I think, for too long. The first one is a trade secret. Sometimes as defense attorneys, a lot of the cases that we go to trial on are circumstantial evidence cases, right? Which just means that a little inference, there needs to be a leap between that fact, that evidence and guilt. But the truth is circumstantial evidence can be overwhelming. In this case, we have a hacksaw. We have a receipt. We have a suitcase linking back to someone. We have blood in the apartment. So even ignoring the direct evidence, that text message, this is a case where we can say it's circumstantial all day long. But I think most people, without knowing anything else, right, we don't know what can poke holes in this. That is a very strong circumstantial case. Now, the second secret is my husband actually is a prosecutor. So we are on the exact uh, opposite sides of the fence on this. We had a case similar to this in San Diego. And there was a young, young woman who was found in a suitcase. There were very interesting things at the end and details, which I won't talk about right now, but that had to do with whether or not there were special circumstances for the death penalty. So I did look it up. And it looks like, and we Colorado attorneys or residents can confirm that there is no death penalty in Colorado as of March 2020. Uh, My husband and I don't talk about the death penalty. It's the one thing that we don't discuss. I'm sure you can guess which side of the fence each of us stands on. But um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said the secret to a good marriage is being a little deaf sometimes. So there are areas (laughs) that we we don't... um, go into. But those are those are two things that I thought about a lot with that case. And I think you point out the most important one, the third, is how sad this person's life was uh, towards the end and kind of the road that that they were traveling. It's really sad about everyone because if what what Benjamin's father, he Benjamin being the one charged here, what Benjamin's father told police, allegedly told police about his son struggling with drugs, And the fact that it is believed that the woman in the apartment was his girlfriend who died of an OD, according to police, and that he had to be rushed to the hospital. You put all of this together, and no good can come of it. This this drug addiction, and clearly these are not the actions of someone thinking straight. So sadly, when uh, there are drugs involved and we don't know what kind they were, this leads to a disaster, and yeah, it's awful, awful what drugs will do to you. That doesn't absolve you of the responsibility, you know, if you are indeed found guilty, but 
man, what it does to people. This is a, a perfect example of it. It's like how sad his dad came in to visit Benjamin, right? And it's just, oh, it's just so sad. So we want to make clear here that Benjamin Satterwhite faces a charge of murder and also tampering with a deceased human body. He has not formally entered a plea yet. However, he is presumed innocent. And who knows what kind of information the rest of this investigation will turn up now. All right. On to our comments section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. A Disney World employee who sells tickets over the phone was taking a reservation when she jumped to assist the person on the other end of the phone because it appeared that the caller was under attack because of a domestic violence situation. So there's a victim on the other end, and so the ticket agent, who's you know, <laughs> at the other end of the phone, calls 911 to assist her. York County in Pennsylvania arrests a man who is now facing an aggravated assault charge along with a few other charges for attacking a woman during a domestic violence incident in Dover earlier this month. The victim was able to summon help by calling the Walt Disney World, and she was, I guess, and this happens a lot with domestic violence victims, you can't call police because then you'll be beaten even more, right? You're afraid. So instead, she comes up with this thought, oh, I'm just calling to make tickets for us to go on vacation, dear. So she gets on the phone, this is according to police, and the agent on the other end says, when they they can hear that that she is screaming, saying, you know, don't hurt me, don't touch me. The the operator, meaning the Disney ticket salesperson, says, "Do you need help? Did you really call to make reservations?" And she's like, "No, I did not call to make reservations." Right. So now the person on the other end of the phone, the ticket reservation person, clearly understands this phone call is not about buying a ticket. It is a call for help. It is an unusual place to call for help, but nonetheless, the agent was very quick thinking, thank God. She calls 911, and police are dispatched to the home. Isn't this incredible? It's it's amazing. It's amazing. I feel this is like, we had a case last week that I got very emotional about. There was a, a child who appeared to look abused, and the child is in a restaurant with his parents also in Florida and the manager who's serving them notices that the child has bruises on the neck and, and other places. And she manages to hold up a little sign to the child saying, are you okay? You know, basically giving the child an opportunity just to even nod. And then she calls police, police arrive. And according to police, the boy was allegedly beaten by his family. Just it's terrible, horrendous, terrible. horrendous case, horrendous, right? But here is, you know, a person who's aware and is responding to another human being. And here we are back in Florida. <laughs> and we have another case of another person who works with the public who is, you know, listen, I just take reservations for a living. But all of a sudden, you have been dropped into someone's life at a most dangerous mm -hmm. time. I mean, this woman was in crisis, according to police. And it's that connection that I feel a lot of us have lost over these last 
10, 11 months. Then when we see these beautiful cases of humanity, I was also so moved by the the waitress story, coming in and caring and getting involved and putting yourself out there really restores a lot of my faith in humanity. Police say that when they arrived, the victim said that she had been choked and that she was afraid she was going to die. 38-year-old Wayne Shiflett has been booked on charges of strangulation, terroristic threats, simple assault, harassment, and aggravated assault. This is for a January 9th incident. So these are the comments. Sabrina A. writes, employee of the century. I hope they give her a special recognition for her quick thinking. I agree with you, Sabrina. Kayla R. writes, yes, Disney, give that woman a raise. And Tina C. writes, angels are everywhere. Tina, I agree with you. Angels are everywhere. They are. Our next case, oh, these ones, this is the kind of case that drives me nuts when it involves a charity and alleged stealing from a charity. It's like you're taking away from children. Stop it. I hate that. The former CEO of Make-A-Wish in Iowa has been arrested on theft charges. Police say that 40-year-old Jennifer Woodley has been arrested and charged with first-degree theft and unauthorized use of a credit card. This is according to jail records. Police say that she allegedly secretly awarded herself a $10,000 bonus that had not been approved by the board. I believe that's a really polite way of saying she allegedly stole money. It's very tactfully stated. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Woodley also allegedly made 84 unauthorized purchases on a Make-A-Wish credit card. And uh, everything she bought was for her personal use. It totaled $23,000, according to police. And this happened over a 10-month span. Woodley allegedly did not reimburse the group for those expenses. I believe that may be one of the lesser problems that she is facing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Minnie D writes, I bet I know what she's wishing for. <laughs> and J-Rod W writes, let's see her make a wish from prison. Oh, I'm going to say that the charity police and the children police are not going to grant her her wishes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is our program for this week. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate your insight into the world of crime. Where can people find you either on social media or if they need an attorney to defend them? Thank you so much. So I'm online, Danielle Iredale, I-R-E-D-A-L-E. -E. I have an Instagram that's at Iredale Law. And I had to give a note, Anna, I read the comments on last podcast and there were so many smart comments about what to do for a trial during the pandemic. And a lot of people noted we should wear clear masks. So I wanted to let those people know they're 100% right. I actually went to the courtroom to check it out and they have clear masks for us to wear. So I, I'm so impressed with all of the viewers who anticipated that and... We're all correct. Well, I have been called, at least I've received a summons for jury duty. It was supposed to, um, I was originally I was called for the beginning of January. And, you know, you have to do the whole thing online and the orientation. And I missed it like by a few hours. So they bumped me to the next month. So now I am on jury duty in the beginning of February. I have to call in to see if I'm going to get on a trial or if I'm going to get called in. So I, if I do get called in, which I doubt that I will, and I've never been picked on a jury, 
I wonder why. I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? The juror asking all the questions, but wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. No one wants me on a jury. So if for some reason I do get called in, I will then be able to share with everyone what that experience is during a pandemic as a potential juror. We'll see. We'll see. I think, you know, the, the clerk is following me <laughs> and is listening to this right now. And they're like, Garcia, A, out of here. <laughs> Scratch that That's name out. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much again. Thank you all. You can find me on all social media sites at Anna G News. That's Anna with one N. I post a little bit about crime, but mostly about chihuahuas, flowers, and things in nature because I think we just need a break from all the darkness. As always, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course on YouTube. And you can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.